0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and member FDIC. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today?
1: You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
0: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Hi.
1: What's your name? Priscilla Boyer. You like Elvis Presley? Of course. Who doesn't? 2022 was the year of Elvis, Baz Luhrmann's auteurist take on the life of the king of
0: rock and roll. This year, the auteur is Sofia Coppola, and the subject is Priscilla. Kaylee Spaney plays the title role in Coppola's film. We've got a review, plus Fingernails, a sci-fi dark comedy starring Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed. That and more. How about a little bit of conversation, a little more action, please? Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. So there's a new movie out there, Josh. It's got Jesse Buckley in it. She's great. Riz Ahmed, he's great. Maybe... Two of the best actors on the planet right now, and maybe people out there haven't even heard of it before. Is this just how movies and life work at this point? I mean,
1: it's that, or we're getting really old and cannot keep up with <laughs> what's out Entirely there. Entirely possible. Um, which is possible. Yeah, Jeremy Allen White is in Fingernails. Mm-hmm. You know, an actor getting so much attention for the bear, you think that would um, garner some headlines, some, some notices, but it's just... So many places to watch this stuff and so many things coming out. I've got, to, I've got to
0: think it's a pure quantity thing at this point. The movie we're talking about is Fingernails from Greek director Christos Niku. It came exclusively to one of those very many platforms, Apple TV Plus, last weekend. And we'll have a review later in the show, maybe exclusively to this show. Who knows? Maybe a few other people are talking about it. We've also got some poll results with listeners telling us about their favorite Sofia Coppola movies and a new poll, a new especially cruel poll from producer Sam, forcing listeners to choose just one Miyazaki film, Josh.
1: I knew this was coming. The moment that a new Miyazaki film was announced, I knew mm-hmm. Sam would do this to us. At yeah, some he started point. plotting then. The day has arrived
0: and I'm still not ready for it. Let's get to Sofia Coppola's Priscilla. It stars Kaylee Spaney as Priscilla and Jacob DeLordi as Elvis. Spaney won the Best Actress Award for her performance at this fall's Venice Film Festival. Coppola adapted her film from Priscilla Presley's 1985 memoir, Elvis and Me, the true story of the love between Priscilla Presley and the king of rock and roll. The film introduces us to Priscilla at 14, the age she first met Elvis. One of the kids listening to these days.
1: Bobby, Darren, Fabian...
0: And you. <laughs> Just what is the intent here, Mr. Presley? You got women throwing themselves at you. Why my daughter?
1: Well, Sarah, I happen to be very fond of your daughter. Baby, baby. She's much more mature than her age.
0: 21! Yeah. Uh, 22. What? That's
1: 22. 22. You
0: don't have to worry, about it.
1: It's often the case, Adam, that our experience of a movie we review one week is influenced by the movie we reviewed the previous week. That was definitely the case for me while watching Priscilla, Sofia Coppola's vision drawn from Priscilla Presley's 1985 memoir of what it might have been like to have been courted, you might say groomed, wooed, married, and mistreated by Elvis Presley. The film spans from 1959 when the then 14-year-old Priscilla, played by Kaylee Spaney, met Elvis at a U.S. military base in Germany, to their divorce in 1973. Elvis, I should note, is played by Jacob Elordi. Last week, Adam, we spent a lot of time in our review of Anatomy of a Fall, a courtroom drama in which a woman is implicated in the death of her husband, talking about perspective and narrative and the subjective nature of observation, experience, and memory. Compared to Anatomy, with its various points of view, opinions, and evidence, the perspective offered by Priscilla is quite narrow this movie places us almost exclusively in the headspace of its title character. Did you find this to be a strength or a weakness, Adam? Did you appreciate experiencing Priscilla Presley's story from this one witness? Or were you hoping for more of a courtroom approach with others also offering their
0: testimonies? Well, first, to your point about movies and reviews sometimes bleeding over into each other, it's not even just Priscilla this week. It's fingernails even too, to an extent, though it's not really about marriage. That couple isn't quite there yet and may never get there, but we do have with Priscilla another movie. It was very much on my mind too, Josh, another movie about the chaos of marriage. And it is true with Fall, we covered a lot of ground, including we talked about the point Sandra makes, the main character on the stand, that nobody can really understand what that relationship is like except the two people going through it. How much more heightened is that reality when the couple in question is Elvis and Priscilla Presley? (laughs) Not many people in history can relate to their circumstances and the level of fame and scrutiny that they experienced. That said, I'm not sure there's much to interrogate here, really. Was Elvis a bad husband? Was he a bad guy? I don't know. I don't expect any movie, no matter what format or who is making it to come close to answering those questions. I definitely wasn't hoping for a different approach, partly because it never occurred to me that there could be a different approach. The movie is called Priscilla. And in the opening credits, we see that it's adapted from Priscilla's memoir, Elvis and Me. I wasn't familiar with the book going in. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, that's, that's too bad. They should have mm-hmm. called it Me and Elvis. <laughs> it's, it's not as catchy... But it would shift the hierarchy. And me is exactly who Priscilla has been in every other Elvis story. And there's been a multitude of them, a secondary character, if included at all. This is finally the movie that puts Elvis in the and role, the secondary role, the supporting role. And that premise, that subversion of the traditional biopic, that counter certainly to Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, though I don't think Coppola remotely cares about that is laudable and bold in theory it's thrilling in practice i was underwhelmed but i want to be clear yeah i knew this was going to happen i knew i was going to let you down here to be clear it's not the point of view that's faulty i think it's the direction coppola flips the biopic completely on its head and then largely commits the same sin that so many other conventional biopics do She covers too much ground too quickly and ironically doesn't offer its main character the agency she deserves. Uh Even more ironically, I'd argue, Coppola gives Elvis more depth and sense of an inner life than she gives Priscilla. I stopped counting how many scenes I had to sit through of Elvis acting like a juvenile with his buddies while Priscilla stood by adoringly or trying to discover some new secret to unlocking the universe while Priscilla stood mostly by adoringly. It looks incredible. And are there some fascinating mysteries at the core of this relationship, some insights Coppola teases out, either from the source material or through her own artistic lens? Of course. Elvis doesn't want a wife so much as a replacement mother who can keep the home fires burning, as he says, at at least two points. Crossed with it seems a mirror image of himself. I didn't take psychology in college, Josh, but... There's a lot to unpack there. Mm. Notice how he keeps making her hair darker and puffier. (laughs) Even if you somehow reject that reading, he's undeniably intent on remaking her and thus controlling her. Here's a great question. What's it like to be married to maybe the sexiest man who ever lived? An object of desire for every woman on the planet from 16 to 65. And just as you're entering into womanhood yourself, your advances are constantly rejected, your impulses mm-hmm. constantly stifled. Also, a lot to unpack. I'd love to see the movie that explores that. I'd love to see the Sophia Coppola movie that explores that. This is the director who made The Virgin Suicides and The Beguiled, two of the most lust-filled, oppressively sexy movies about female yearning ever. There's no fire between these two. All we get here are repetitive scenes of Priscilla putting some moves on Elvis, him saying some variation of not tonight, baby, her turning away, dejected. Your Elvis was better. Yes, I see you smiling. <laughs> I don't know, her know what I'm offended about more.
1: That, that, in, that impression of Elvis or your general
0: take on this film. I, this I, is I even practiced downhill. that. Downhill. I even practiced that her turning away (laughs) dejected scene ends the one scene, the one version of that scene that doesn't end with her turning away dejectedly produces the worst line reading in the film, even lost in translation, a movie that succeeds largely because of how it avoids evoking sexual tension between its central couple is hotter than this movie, a movie about Elvis and Priscilla Presley.
1: Okay, so many places, so many places to to counter here. But let's start with this, this sexiness element you're bringing in. The, what we're told here, you know, the version we're getting from uh, Priscilla Presley, from her book, and she's credited as an executive producer here, that gave me pause as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when I see this on any biopic yes. that the subject is involved, I really don't <laughs> really have suspicions. But from the perspective we're getting here, is that perhaps there was not that sexual chemistry in their marriage. That is one of the many mysteries because he wanted her to be the virgin Mm -hmm. to his you know, the other women he would be with when he was out filming on the sets or on the road, on concerts and so forth. So, so I think that might be purposeful that that lack of fire is there. At the same time, I would disagree. I think one of the defining qualities Kaylee Spaney gives to this Priscilla is her sexual hunger and her sexual desire. It's there at the beginning when she's playing her as a a young teenager, you know, this, this is not some demure innocent. And I want to be careful mm-hmm. here because I purposely used in the setup, the word groomed the way this movie presents it. It absolutely was that um, really kind of sickening process with this other officer picking her out at a diner and, and essentially saying that you Elvis would like to meet you. It's almost like he's shopping um, for an Elvis mannequin, but at the same time, here's the agency Priscilla Presley is presented here, and as Spaney performs her, is a sexual being who has desires for Elvis, acts on those desires, and that's part of what attracts her to move to Graceland. I mean, yes, it's the fame, it's the music, it's the lifestyle— it's, this is what I got pr- from the performance. It's to have sex with Elvis. <laughs> that is why she yeah. goes, right? And she's thwarted. So, yes. so, and she's thwarted. So I, I guess I would disagree on that point. I, I think that's a distinctive quality of Spaney's performance um, that is to the movie's credit. And I will agree with you. This is a passive character. Um, that is definitely the challenge of many characters in Sofia Coppola films. And and I'll, I'll get to this later when I want to talk about her as a director, because it seems like um, that aspect of the film didn't work for you very well. But I, I call this a Sofia Coppola moments movie where it is built of, you may have found them repetitive um, or not delivering enough information or, or mm-hmm. something along those lines. But to me, it's because there are, Many of her films, Virgin Suicides, I say, I would say is one of them, Somewhere as well uh, is one of them, that are built upon these little moments, okay? These, these scenes that are made up of textures, sounds, and accessories more than dialogue exchanges or plot information. But what those textures, sounds, and accessories do is create this indelible moment that says so much about a character— and about their experience, way more than endless pages of dialogue could. That's what I've always loved about some of her best films. Uh, I think The Bling Ring works this way. And absolutely, we'll talk about Marie Antoinette, which is the closest film, I think, that this is to. But this is a challenge for an actor, a, a moments movie like this, because they're not giving lines um, to deliver. They're not They're not giving the more obvious modes of presenting a character. And here's where I think Spaney is exceptionally impressive. This means she has to be very tactical about things like the widening and narrowing of her eyes, the fullness or the falseness of her smile, or even the way she sits in these rooms. You're right to point out that there are a lot of scenes of her with Elvis and the guys. And the acting that she is doing, the communicating she is giving, is how she takes up the space next to those guys. Is she part of the fun? Does she try to ingratiate herself as part of the fun by her posture? Um, Or is she standing apart? Is she defensive? Um, Is she trying to protect herself? Think of the threat of violence that surrounds her whenever... Elvis is hanging out with his buddies it's not only that he in this film we've seen um according to this version threatens her at times and gets angry and and violent but these guys are always doing things like crashing golf carts into each other they've got guns in their pants all the time everywhere they go and here she is alone and so it is all about how spainy kind of how she maneuvers in those moments. So uh, I agree, a passive character, but I don't think... I think her passiveness is also crucial to her character. Um, you could not make an aggressive Priscilla Presley from what I've learned about her story. That was not her experience. And so then the challenge becomes for Spainy to give her real life beyond that. and And I think... I think she absolutely does. I want to go to one thing you said, um, back in, in sunnier days when I thought you were going to be praising this movie Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you used a phrase that I thought was really on point shift the hierarchy. Um, that that would have, by changing the title of the memoir, that would have shifted the hierarchy. And I do think that is what this movie is ultimately doing and is the thrill of it, is the importance of it, is the meaning of it. And here's why I'll go back to Marie Antoinette. This This Priscilla we see is very much like the Marie Antoinette we meet, Kirsten Dunst, in that film. These are young women who are thrust, not entirely unwillingly, that's where they're little agency or personality comes in, but they've been thrust into these lives of plush imprisonment. And while there are perks to this, you know, these, these are very luxuriously padded cells both find themselves in. Think about the mm-hmm. first image we get in Priscilla, such a sensual image, her bare feet stepping softly across this, this lush shag carpeting of Graceland. So these are very, very luxuriously padded cells, but the power imbalance is way off. And so what we're watching in both films is Priscilla and Marie grabbing power whenever and however they can, shifting the hierarchy in subtle ways. And I found that to be a transfixing experience, even though I can, understand, I can understand the impression you were left with from the film. And the other thing I do want to agree with you on, which I don't think it's to the film's detriment, but I see where you're coming from. Jacob Alordi as Elvis here, he's great. So great. And we were both, you know, really high on Austin Butler as Elvis in the Lerman film. I think you you like that performance, right? If I'm remembering. One currently. of my favorite of the year. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. So what's interesting here is like this is. And again, I don't think that movie was on the filmmakers minds here or a Lordy's mind, but he's delivering almost the polar opposite. Right. We get this Elvis of um, demure insecurity. Um, uh, the scary bursts of anger are there, but mostly he's nervous and jittery, right? He's almost quiet. And it was fascinating to see that portrayal of this figure comparison to something like, you know, the, the hip tastic Elvis that we got from Austin Butler, which is also part of the, of his persona. So, so yeah, I, I agree with you. There's a lot more Elvis here than I actually expected.
0: Hmm. Yeah. This is no fun. This position I'm in where especially coming off two weeks of both of us praising significantly two of the best movies of the year. And now I have to be the Grinch. And I knew, of course, that you would mount a great defense because you watch movies very well and you love Sofia Coppola. And you're right too, that this movie, I don't think it's doing anything dramatically different than her other films. And I'll note that I like the way all those other films are constructed, the textures, sounds and accessories approach. So something else for me is just off here. And this is, where, this is where I have the boring counter, Josh, of just saying that I didn't want more information. I wanted more emotional heft and depth. I didn't get it the way you did in those performances, certainly. And I also didn't want a more aggressive Kaylee Spaney as Priscilla Presley. I, again, just wanted something more. And that's a hard thing for me to articulate. I'll go back to the accessories real quick and say this. The best scene in the film, the best little visual flourish in the film is the scene with the guns. That's Sofia Coppola at her best, giving a straight character development without ever actually seeing the character on screen. And we also, of course, don't see the character or hear the character say anything. We just know that once he's introduced her to the notion of guns, and she's had a little fun and she's been a little naughty out there shooting them. What's the next scene? She's actually putting dresses down on the bed and then trying to match up the different guns. Right. With right. Tells <laughs> us everything we need to know about her. And I do I do love little little touches like that. You mentioned the the Priscilla Presley angle here. Her is executive producer. And of course I I can't, I'm not even going to speculate about how involved she may or or may not have been. I just know that as I sat there with the lights coming up on this movie, it felt a little, the vision of it felt maybe a little compromised to me. And, And I do know I'd picked up somewhere along the way that Lisa Marie Presley, before she died, she hated the script. She never saw the finished film, obviously, but she hated the script. And she wrote to Sofia Coppola and said, this isn't my father and you have to change it. And Sofia Coppola stuck to her guns. You would expect she would and said, I I hope you'll appreciate the the version of your father I, I brought to life. And I'm pretty certain she didn't change a thing because of that letter. I also know that the Elvis estate didn't ultimately approve of this script. That all... That all noted, Josh, there's still a part of me that wonders if if maybe Coppola was just a little bit hesitant to push it quite as far as she could to further inflame those tensions more than she knew she already was doing. And then she also has to be true to Priscilla's book and her vision as the subject and the executive producer. So, you know, going back to your initial question, I I don't need an anatomy of a fall like approach, but I kind of wish I could see the version of this film. That's about a fictional couple <laughs> instead yeah, of yeah. instead of a real life couple and and one that wasn't bound by any constraints.
1: Yeah, I think that's entirely fair. And that's why I i, I formed that question, particularly mm-hmm. for you. I thought that might be something that would be in your head as it was mine, as I've said. Um, and I think, you know, this goes back to Coppola as a filmmaker. It, I think it would bother me more if it was a different filmmaker who had not already proven themselves in this very narrowly focused perspective style of filmmaking. Um, as I said that that Coppola has in making these, these sort of moments movies, I, I had a sense going in that we were going to get what it is like 30 seconds, what it might have been like 30 seconds at a time to have been in this relationship with Elvis. And for some reason that allowed me to give her um, and the film a little more leeway than I might have if another filmmaker had been involved. And also understanding, as I think you know, certainly you did and most audiences going into this will, we're not getting the documentary truth here, right? This is something that Anatomy of a Fall emphasized to us. It was helpful to have that, is to remember that we are getting Mm -hmm. a very blinkered version of this real life, relationship. Let me give you a couple of those moments, though. Um, I love the one you called out about the guns matching the dresses. Such a great one. Um, how about the hiss and the mist of the Aquanet spray that enables her to create a This Graceland hairdo that defies, you know, geometric and architecture proportions. Mm -hmm. And what what I love about that is, again, the tactility of it, the sensuousness of it, um, the smell, you know, if, if you've smelled hairspray of any kind, as soon as that starts filling the screen, you can smell that. And also how it works as, you know, this is enhancing her perceived beauty, but it's kind of what does hairspray do? It's freezing her in place, right? It's kind of locking her in. Uh, again, imagery and and sensuousness to to capture this experience. How about the shot of her? You know, when Elvis leaves town, it seems like everybody but grandma maybe leaves town because the whole mansion gets so quiet. And yeah. we just get one shot of Priscilla sitting on that white couch that looks like it can hold 25 people. And she's placed right in the middle there. And just sitting there, like, what What else am I to do? It's almost like it, the place has become this tomb. And so I think, I think just moments like that were enough for me. I, I, Coppola just has its sensory cinema of a particularly perceptive kind um, because it is immersed in the immediacy of a moment, gives us all we need to know about that moment. But then, especially here, I think this is important um, because people are going to have heated arguments about this relationship, her youth how much older he was, all these sorts of things. And I think these moments allow for an ambivalence as well. Um, An ambivalence that points to the wider implications of each individual moment. So it speaks to the fact that um, Priscilla Presley found happiness in this relationship at times. Um, Was it healthy from the start? No, probably not. But the truth is she may have found happiness. Here those moments are. But even in those moments of happiness, there's... There's ambivalence. Um, How about when he leaves her on the tarmac? He goes back to the States and she has to stay Mm -hmm. in Germany. What does he do? He kind of twirls her away right into a crowd of cheering teenagers. And she just merges back into Mm -hmm. anonymity there. So so just little touches like that, I think, were enough uh, for me. But let me ask you one other question. Um, You mentioned how the Elvis estate was not happy with the script And it sounds like there was, there's no Elvis music in here because it wasn't granted to Coppola. And I found that to be kind of maybe a blessing in disguise that she wasn't allowed to use the music. But what did you make of, you know, because songs are so important to her films, needle drops are important to her films. What did you make of this mix of other period music and more contemporary compositions that have that sort of ethereal, um, dreamy,
0: dream pop Uh, quality that a lot of her other movies do yeah music by phoenix here and honestly i liked the anachronistic touches so much which isn't new for coppola that i wish it wasn't a mix i wish we didn't get any contemporary music i actually Mm. preferred the moments where it was scored to that modern music that that surprised us and part of the reason i loved it is it doesn't just feel to me like coppola kind of showing off or or trying to be different it actually suggests or evokes a sense of timelessness to mm. this relationship that that these types of relationships as truly unique as a relationship with Elvis Presley would be it's it's the same dynamic a lot of the same dynamics are at play in relationships across decades and, and in spanning time. So I, I appreciated that element quite a bit. I, I felt a little bit of exhilaration every time that music was played, honestly, and as disappointed ultimately as I became by this film, the fact is I spent at least the first 30 minutes of it, Josh, honestly, thinking about where it was going to go on my top 10 films of the year. Yeah, yeah, For a lot of the reasons, for a lot of the reasons you're, you're mentioning, I love so much how every frame of this film is composed. There is a lushness to it. The costuming, the production design, the very intentional lighting. I feel like, and, and it truly is a feeling because I can't prove it. I feel like this is almost a signature Sofia Coppola shot, or it should be. The shot we get, and we get a glimpse of it in the trailer. The shot we get of Priscilla, I think as she's rolling up to Graceland for the first time. And we maybe get an echo of it when she's she's coming to Elvis's house in Germany for the first time. The car is in motion. The camera is on her in a profile, kind of from a side. And she's looking just kind of out of the corner of her eye, almost at the camera. And everything about it almost empowers her, but also for me did suggest this notion of, her being stuck already—it's mm. like the glass of the window mm-hmm. is is a barrier that's that's already putting her in a cell before she's even entered the grounds. And that first shot of her on the stool at the diner, oh, where wow. the camera—I yeah. mean, it's so subtle but so brilliant—the camera slowly approaching, almost from the point of view of of the Elvis stand-in there or the guy who is going to recruit her that friend he's he's slowly approaching her and the camera is creeping towards her and then her again turning in profile it's this profile shot and something about that angle so mesmerized me and that was the first shot of the film so i was i was with so much of this film honestly until i felt like this goes back to the notion of where it aligns or doesn't line as much as it's It's countering the notion of the conventional biopic with that hierarchy subversion. There was, for me, that moment where it does what so many biopics do. Think about how long it is before we get to Graceland, which is great. Before we get to their marriage, it's so deliberate in establishing these characters and their relationship. It feels like Coppola's heart is really in all of those scenes and and establishing that. Except at some point, the movie does have to be about what it's going to be about. The story machine has to turn. And so we know eventually they're going to go to Vegas. We're going to get some, to the extent that Coppola gives us any cliched moments. We're going to get the moments we expect. The marriage is going to end. I'm curious if you felt any sense of it being too condensed. I was hyper aware Mm. of it feeling very condensed. And we both often, we'll talk about biopics in these terms, we'll say, it's such a smart strategy to just avoid trying to tell too much of the story. And I don't right. even know for sure how many years are covered here, but it's a decent amount of time. It's at least a decade, I imagine, right? Yeah. From the point she's 14. It has to be more than that from the time. I think it's about that, 14 years they were together. There you go. Yeah. The time they meet to the time she, she leaves. We just want these biopics to be smart, focus on a series of years focus on one period. And I thought during that first half, at least of the film, I thought, is Coppola going to make a movie that actually ends with their marriage? Mm. <laughs> that it's it's mm. just all about the courtship? That would have been really subversive and great and thrilling. Yeah. Hell, maybe we never even get to Graceland and it all takes place in Germany. That would have would have been exceptionally bold. I really was thinking, I feel like this is where it's going and I can't wait to see how it plays out. But of course it can't it can't to some extent do that because it has to it has to end with her leaving him otherwise there's no reversal there's no character arc right that that of course then also just creates the problem for me of it all feeling too compressed yeah
1: i mean y- right you could do this from you could make this all about the day she decides she actually leaves right it could be that peppered with you know, maybe little memories. There there are different ways to structure it. I imagine this is partly the deal you make when you're going to adapt the book, right? Um and so I, I get what you're saying. And we do both look at biopics similarly. Here, for me, then it comes back to the moments and Coppola having to be very selective about among those 14 years, what is she going to choose? To show us, it's very chronological. The other movie I had in my head um, was *All Dirt Roads*, *Taste of Salt*, which I recommended for *Golden Brick* on last week's show, and that is an avant-garde moments movie. Like that is, we're jumping all around in time. This woman um, thinking back of her life in rural Mississippi, and um, you know that that one is more experimental in what you've just been describing i could see coppola doing something like that but working with presley's memoir i don't know that she necessarily had that freedom going back to the music just briefly i wanted to ask you something and see if you if i have this right if you remember it um but you may not it's it's kind of a quirky tiny little detail but one thing i loved about the use of music great point about what if this had all been contemporary Mm -hmm. i think that would have been really cool um the one nice thing i do like about um not using elvis's music and this being a blessing in disguise is we get a couple tracks from the era from women artists so we get brenda lee we get anita kerr and that's just like a nice little way to shift the power dynamic too right um Mm -hmm. and then we also get another period one tommy james and the shondells crimson and clover oh
0: That's the most heat in the film. What and is, it's largely right, because of the now. song. Come on
1: <laughs> it's It's like one of the great songs. And yeah. everyone now has it in their head. Mm-hmm. I think Coppola does. Tell me if, if you remember this at all. What I would call a needle not drop. And again, this is capturing the ambivalence. I believe this is... The car is pulling up to her house in Germany. So this is during their early days of flirtation and infatuation. And the music is building up. We maybe have had a montage of them on dates or something like that at this point. And just as the music is about to unleash that climactic chord, you know, the literal climax of that Mm -hmm. great song. I feel like Coppola cuts the song and we go to silence. And that denies us the satisfaction. Mm. It denies us, um, you know, Everything we've been waiting for. This goes exactly to your point about lack of heat. The lack of heat is part of the point of this relationship, I think. And um, there's a hint here of how this supposed fairy tale is going to end. But do you recall that? Am I making that up? Or is that something that 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 sounds right?
0: No, now that you're saying it, I do love that song. And I loved when it started playing in the movie. So... I do vaguely now remember a feeling of dissatisfaction when I didn't get the payoff. I okay. feel like we don't completely get the payoff. So I think you're tapping in to something there. I do just want to mention quickly, Josh, that I agree the lack of heat is part of the point. I mean, we see it the whole film that he he almost never has sex with her. Clearly, there isn't any heat, or at least it's it's all one way. Yeah. What I'm saying is I think there's a lot more interesting tension To play with and a lot more to explore from a, from a gender and power dynamic standpoint. If you've got the woman who is the one being deprived of that satisfaction of those thrills, she's the one who is looking for that element in her marriage and never getting it. But if you don't, but if you don't actually feel that spark coming from her. If you don't ever really get the sense that it's anything more than obligatory, which is what I felt watching the movie, then there isn't that tension. So is that, that was an my issue experience.
1: of, is that an issue of sort of like framing and direction or performance? What, what did you make of
0: Spaney's performance? The, see, that's the thing. I'm, I'm torn. And this is what happens. I don't know whether or not it's a deficiency on Spaney's part, but for me, it's definitely not up there with the performances of the year, as I know some, some have hailed it. I, I don't, I don't know that she is capable of embodying what this film needs her to embody the way other actresses in Sofia Coppola's filmography have very Mm -hmm. effectively. But I'm also I'm also not sure that with this film, because I do question some of the choices Coppola made in terms of the overall structure of it. I'm not sure whether or not she put Spaney in the the best position or not. I'm yeah, I'm conflicted on that
1: yeah no, I, I think it's a it, it's a difficult performance to to for the reasons I mentioned, being this admittedly passive performance. It's difficult to get my mind around. I mm-hmm. knowing going in how praised she had been, um, I think I expected something I don't know more immediately gripping as well. And Mm -hmm. it was more in retrospect and putting it within the context of, um, you know, the actual experience that Presley might've had that I appreciated more the way she was working. And I think the heat, the heat is something you know, I think she does, I think she does deliver. I think it goes back to that first shot of her you talked about. Um, and it's problematic because she's playing 14 there. Um, but she's sitting in, in that's at that stool in the diner and she turns to look when the officer comes up to her and you get a sense she's projecting something of why he picked her out. There was something about her. Um, and I think there's, call it heat, call it whatever you want. There's a reason he chose her. And I do think Spaney projects that. So, so for me, it was there. It was there enough.
0: If you see Priscilla and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Now, I'm sure you haven't thought about this at all, Josh, but you know, our producer, Sam, the devious guy that he is, after I warned him a little bit that I, I was going to be subdued in my reaction to this movie, he wondered if we needed to throw in a little spice and have a Coppola ranked segment. I'm not suggesting we do that, but knowing that you liked the film as much as you did, I'd be curious to know if you have a sense of where you are tearing it because you are such a Coppola fan. Have you added it to your letterboxed list? That was going
1: to be a project for tomorrow if I found the time. So you're absolutely right. Have not given this much thought. Um, You know, it's interesting. I have always liked Coppola's work and, even from the very beginning, though, I've always underrated it, and so I have come back. If you look back at my original reviews, which I think I have on my on my website, um, they're like three stars for something like Marie Antoinette, which I absolutely love now. Um, so I don't always trust myself, or i've I've learned hmm. to, <laughs> I've learned what I need to look for in a Sofia Coppola movie to realize why they're as good as they are. So all that to say. Um, I have this really high. I wonder if I'm overcompensating a bit because of that, um, but I would put it probably top tier, which I would include Lost in Translation, The Beguiled, which is a very different movie. I mean, it, you know, it, it, this is similar, as I've described, to many of her movies, but she doesn't always make the same movie. I want to be clear about that. Um, I have the, the Beguiled up there, The Bling Ring up there, uh, Marie Antoinette, and probably Probably this—that's half her filmography. I mean, she—you know—as as we've we've established on previous shows, she doesn't miss.
0: Yeah. Well, you said that well in terms of coming to terms with how you should watch a Sofia Coppola film and what your expectations are. I haven't come to that yet. If you haven't already, other people listening disregarded my take on Priscilla. I suppose you can disregard it now. I've only seen all of her films one time. The exception being lost in translation. When we talked about that, we revisited it as part of a sacred cow review. I don't know, maybe five years ago. Yeah, I've it's kind been of lost track of time, but it has been a little while. So I've only seen him once. My ranking is especially superficial, then, and I guess I'll just say right now, giving it what I'm going to give it on Letterboxed, which is a two and a half star rating. Oh, Priscilla sits at the bottom of her filmography let's i've got it below i've got it below your beloved bling ring let's just please move on again we would love to hear your feedback on priscilla or your favorite sofia coppola films feedback at filmspotting.net coming up fingernails with jesse buckley and riz ahmed and some
1: poll results but first Here are a couple of ways you can help the show. If you're a regular listener, or even if you're just still getting to know us, could you take a minute and give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? Each one of those ratings and reviews
0: really do help us reach new listeners. I hate calling out our listeners, Josh. They're so good to us, but it's been a good three or four weeks since we've seen a new review pop up after such a great spell of amazing ratings. We would really appreciate it if you take the time, go to Apple Podcasts, say something nice about the show. Another way you can support us, join the FilmSpotting family. That allows you to listen early and ad-free. You get the weekly newsletter. Sam talked this week about 50s Madness and our friend Mariah Gates and her Noir Vember. We also offer monthly bonus shows. The last one, especially fun, our horror movie draft with FilmSpotting family member and the godfather of... Film Spotting Madness, Mike Merrigan. If you're a Film Spotting Advisory Board member, that's the highest tier. Josh, you get to be part of a quarterly board meeting with me, with you, with Sam. We talk about important show business on those calls. That one's coming up actually here on November 17th. Oh, and you also get complete access to the Film Spotting Archive, filmspottingfamily.com.
1: This is what it takes. My process is purely logistical. If I'm effective, it's because of one simple fact I don't give.
0: Same, Josh. Very same. Michael Fassbender there in the trailer for David Fincher's The Killer. Can't wait. It's been playing in limited release and comes to a Netflix near you this weekend. New Fassbender, new Fincher. Are you excited for this one, Josh, or do you not give a Fassbender?
1: <laughs> I'm not really sure what that means, so um, can't answer directly. But yeah, of course. I mean, Fincher, I, I'm. I would say sort of a conflicted relationship. I'm definitely not like all in like you are. Like, you know. Yeah, I'm all in. The guy films a pillow and it's like four and a half stars.
0: That's number three on Letterboxd in my ranking.
1: (laughs) That's not me. That's not me, but obviously fascinating, talented filmmaker. And how long has it been since we've seen Fassbender? So that's maybe the most intriguing thing about this. Yeah, definitely
0: up for this one. 10 years ago or so when he won... Film Spotting Madness, the inaugural Film Spotting Madness, was crowned the best actor on the planet. He just decided, I've done it. I've done it all. Okay. What was, more is there to achieve? Was that it, or did we somehow curse I think it. it was. Good point. We will have a review of The Killer next week. Might be a film. Don't know. We haven't seen it yet. Might be a film deserving of some more spoiler talk. Have had a lot of fun reading feedback And talking about, with listeners and with each other, Killers of the Flower Moon and Anatomy of a Fall, we do want to make that more of a regular bit here on Film Spotting rather than maybe once every two years with the movies that really justify it as those two movies did. Not going to happen this week with Fingernails or Priscilla, but we'll see what happens with The Killer. Not so sure about the holdovers, Josh, but that new one from Alexander Payne is one I can't wait for you to see, and I'm a little worried That like I did with Priscilla, you're gonna let me down Mm. with the holdovers. No pressure. Okay. Yeah. Payne is, you know,
1: I think I've liked most of his stuff, but again, not universally. So there's there's room for there, there's room there that that I might be let down a bit.
0: I'm with you on Alexander Payne. Holdovers, it's it's near the top. It's near the top of that Payne ranking that I have not formed yet over on Letterboxd. Paul Giamatti, stars. In this movie, which does harken back to another very famous Alexander Payne, Paul Giamatti movie, which is Sideways. It's expanding, The Holdovers is, to more cities and more screens this weekend. If you see either of those films, The Killer or The Holdovers, and you have thoughts you want to share, maybe something you'd like us to dive into in spoiler talk, send us a note, feedback at filmspotting.net. A couple weeks back, Josh, we announced a contest for Barbie from Greta Gerwig, on digital giving away 10 free codes to get barbie on digital and now it's time to announce some winners we've got some feedback from those listeners we asked them simply to share their greta gerwig filmography ranked here are josh
1: our 10 winners our first winner is mary beth smith also known as the token ginger. I think that's what they call her in La Crescenta, California. She says, maybe this is recency bias-fueled, but in my estimation, she just keeps outdoing herself. So she's got Barbie at number one. Mary Beth says, the outright funniest movie I've seen in years. Little Women is at two. Lady Bird is at three. And then look at this. Mary Beth. I mean, a show off, completist here. Dua Lipa Dance the Night is four. And then Nights and Weekends. Uh, wait, she says, haven't seen it, but I'm not a swan burger.
0: So there's no way it's better than the other four. Yeah, it's definitely not better than the first three. Can't speak to Dua Lipa Dance the Night. Nice entry there. A deserved winner, even though, in this case, truly randomly chosen. Also randomly chosen, Liston Jackson. Lady Bird at number one, Little Women two, Barbie at three. Liston adds, a special thank you for this contest and poll because I somehow had never heard of Nights and Weekends, but now it's on my watch list. Our other winner is Tanner
1: Hoisington from Charleston, South Carolina. Tanner says, I haven't got to see Barbie yet because we got a puppy a couple of weeks before Barbenheimer. And given the choice to see one on a big screen, I used my hall pass to leave the house and see Oppenheimer. But I really want to see it. So given that here is Tanner's ranking little women at one, five stars. Barbie is projected to take uh, number two. How do you and feel about Lady that, Josh? Bird. Lady Bird at three and a half stars. Is that, are we allowing that? Is that, is that allowable?
0: We're going to allow it. Even though the bigger sin here is nobody deserves to win who gives Ladybird under four and a half stars. Period. Ooh. Wow. Harsh. David Skalicki says, number four, Nights and Weekends. He's going in reverse order here like we do it on Film Spotting. Nights and Weekends four, Barbie three, Little Women two, Lady Bird one. Okay. David, you get Adam's stamp of approval. Cindy Ryan
1: has Little Women at one, Barbie at two, Lady Bird at three. Oh, boy. Four, Nights and Weekends. Sorry, Cindy. You have made Adam frown.
0: (laughs) You you have only slightly. You actually put Little Women at number one, and- I think that's how I would rank it, too, Josh. Mm. I think Little Women's ahead of Lady Bird. That's how much I love that film. Carl Martin says, It brings me no joy to rank Greta's films as if they are descending in quality. But to be fair, one and two are incredibly close. Yes, they are. Lady Bird one, Little Women two, Barbie three on Carl's list.
1: Our other winner is David from Elgin, Illinois. He went from five to one with Francis Ha at five. Oh, yeah. Okay. Barbie four, Mistress America three, Lady Bird two, Little women one. So David, you know, playing with the, the categories there a little bit.
0: Yeah, and we're going to allow it, as we did with Keith, hook up the doll Moser in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Francis Hall 1, Barbie two, Little Women three, Ladybird four. Ladybird four. And there's no Mistress America" because Keith admits he hasn't seen it. Sarah Cummings kept it simple. Barbie one, Lady bird two. Little Women 3. We will close out with our 10th and final winner. Thank you to everyone who entered. Emily Clark says, This is my first time reaching out to you guys to participate, so I'm happy to be sharing my rankings of Greta Gerwig's films. Number one, Little Women. I hold the story of Little Women close to my heart because it was one of the books I read every few months as a kid, and Gerwig's adaptation both appealed to my childhood and adulthood expectations. I don't know how she did it, but I feel like she stayed true to the classic story while giving it plenty of modern flavor. At two, she has Lady Bird. I watched
1: Lady Bird with my mom, and I am a daughter, which was not the easiest endeavor, but worth the slight discomfort. The coming of age story is relatable despite the quirkiness of the main character, and Gerwig makes her script absolutely come alive, and as a solo directorial
0: debut nonetheless. No bound back inclusions here at number three. Her final pick, Emily, has Barbie. Now, I know Barbie is the blockbuster hit of the year and all, but in the end, it feels shallow in comparison to Gerwig's other films. I enjoyed it thoroughly, and yes, it did make me cry, possibly due to the fact that I was experiencing an above-average amount of sexism in my daily life at that time. Sorry to hear that, Emily. But after reflecting on the film, I felt that it was lackluster in its attempts to dole out social criticisms and functions better as a comedy. I think Gerwig's genius is woven throughout Barbie, and I wouldn't call it a bad film, but it is third on my list, and... I get it. Lady Bird and Little Women are tough competition. Barbie is available now on digital. Again, our thanks to everyone who entered and our congrats to everyone who won. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own code to get Barbie now on digital. It's our periodic reminder, Josh, that as we're into November and before you know it, we're gonna be talking top 10 films and we're going to be approaching New Year's, Film Spotting Madness is right around the corner. I'm feeling very deficient in this area myself, even though overall my, my list of films from the 50s shortlist is at 77 or 78%. That means I still have some homework to do. And we want to remind you that that 2024 Madness shortlist, the best films of the 50s, is available now over on Letterboxd, you can find it on our website if you go to filmspotting.net slash madness, and we will put a link to that list in the notes for this show. It's our annual bracket-style tourney if you've never participated in The Madness before. 2024 will be year 9, 64 films battling for supremacy. Always a good time, but your enjoyment may be relative to the number of films from the shortlist that you have seen, which, yes, we realize may mean a lot of homework for some of you. So check out the list, start crossing them off if you are so inclined. And Josh, some of our listeners have definitely been doing their homework. They've been letting us know about it. We love to hear it. We love to hear that they're having a great experience with these films. Here's Darren, who posted a note recently in the comments over on Letterboxd. Since first seeing this list a little over a month
1: ago, when I was at 62%, I've seen a dozen movies from it and jumped up to 75%. Filling in blind spots from Ingmar Bergman, Stanley Kubrick, Ilya Kazan, William Wyler, Howard Hawks, Billy Wilder, Jacques Tati, Kenji Mizuguchi, Robert Wise, George Stevens, Fred Zinneman, and Walt Disney has been ridiculously rewarding. Although there are so many others left to go, I'm nevertheless confident I'll catch up in time for my first 100% since you started posting these lists. I don't know what it is about a list and a deadline that suddenly inspires us to finally watch the works of so many masters, but I'm certainly grateful for it then darren Ad still needs to include the music room
0: though so josh we have been quick digression but related to our topic so not that much of a digression we have been getting some heat and i love getting heat for this from our listeners for leaving off the music room and if you have noted as well that they thought it was odd that we left off Jita, which is the second film in that apu trilogy we have the other two films which I think we both have rated higher than Aparajito. I definitely do. Pader Panchali and The World of Apu, the third installment in that trilogy. Those two, I think, are locks for the tournament. And no matter how deserving the music room may be, no matter how deserving Aparajito might be, it feels a little bit like Overkill to have more than those two Ray films in it. But Josh, you are someone who just quite recently... Rewatch the music room, part of our Ray Marathon. You just watched it on screen at Film Scene, actually, here in Iowa City back during the Refocus Film Festival. Are you with Darren and others that Sam and I are derelict in our film spotting madness stewardship and have to add the music room to the shortlist?
1: I mean, I think we just call it a day and declare Ray the winner of the decade and we'll be (laughs) done here. I think that would be entirely respectable, honestly. Okay.
0: So is that a cop out or? Yeah, it's a cop out. Totally. We will post the short list in the notes for this show. Also encourage you once again to visit filmspotting.net slash madness. And Darren said it, we did something different this year. We organized the list by tiers rather than just showing them all alphabetically. We wanted to make sure you were prioritizing your viewing. If you have limited time, like we all do, you know, you're not going to get to some, which ones maybe do you leave out? Even if they do have a chance of making the tournament, that's what we did. And it's been fun, Josh, seeing, Various people comment on the availability of these films, helping each other out by noting where you can see them. Darren, again, says that Criterion Channel, not a surprise here, is the winner. 36 of the titles from the list are streaming there. Max isn't far behind with 33. Canopy and Hoopla, check your local library, have 25 and 11 respectively. Most of the other services will disappoint, Darren says, especially if you're using Netflix, Apple TV, and Hulu. All of those have zero, which is a bummer, but it's the reality. Let us know how your progress is going. Email us feedback at filmspotting.net or just comment over on that letterbox list
1: quick note about our sister podcast, the next picture show right now they have part two of their true West pairing. So they're tackling killers of the flower moon. The previous episode looked at 1950s broken arrow with James Stewart. That was a movie Adam totally unfamiliar with. uh, And it was a fascinating conversation. Sounds like um, an interestingly progressive film for its time, yet also concerning in other ways, looking at it now in 2023, I love it when The Next Picture Show crew digs into some of these older films, especially ones that I don't know too well. So this week, again, Killers of the Flower Moon, they're talking about In the Context of Broken Arrow, which is currently streaming on Peacock and VOD. You can find The Next Picture Show wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Does it get easier?
1: No. Yes. It gets easier. Oh, yeah? Look at you.
0: Thanks. <laughs> Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson and Sofia Coppola's second feature, Lost in Translation, Coppola's most celebrated film, a Best Picture and Best Director nominee, and it won her a Screenwriting Oscar. But is it her most Beloved, that was the burning question producer Sam was trying to answer in our most recent poll. And that means it's time for some deeply flawed film spotting poll results. We asked you to name your favorite Sofia Coppola film. She's made eight features, including the new Priscilla. We only gave you two options or we we really gave you all of them, but we framed it this way. Is her best film lost in translation? Actually, we should be accurate. Josh, Sam asked, what's your favorite? Yes, Sofia Coppola film. Is it lost in translation or is it the pack? Is it other? And you have to write in what the other would be. How did it come out? We have consensus. Lost in translation, 62%. uh,
1: Other getting 38%. And it's interesting in the context of Priscilla. To me, lost in translation is one of those Coppola movies that stands a bit apart from... It's not necessarily a, a moments movie, as I describe Priscilla and Marie Antoinette. Um, You know, it has more of a a narrative trajectory to it, I would say. Um, So for whatever that's worth, it still is, and I would agree with this, regarded as the favorite for many listeners uh, among her films.
0: Here's Henrique Fontanelle. Lost in Translation is in my top three of all time. Having grown up around the world, the film strikes at nostalgia and melancholy, A Stranger in a Strange Land. Nearly 20 years after the film's release, I visited Tokyo and found it to be one of my favorite places. Oh, and the soundtrack. I got married to Jesus and Mary Chains Honey.
1: Understandable. Here's Kate Kessler, my first time being moved to comment on a poll, because I think Lost in Translation is way overhyped as Coppola's Best. I rewatched it a couple years ago, and it's good, but there are so many as good, if not better, films
0: from her. I'm partial to Virgin Suicides, Marie Antoinette, and The Beguiled. Here's Natalie Carbone. Somewhere is everything for me. It's delicate and elegant, a father-daughter story for the ages, and my favorite L.A. movie. That's tough competition, Josh.
1: There are some serious Somewhere fans out there. Uh, a good film, uh, but yeah, people, people really love that one. Here's Mitch McGonigal. I voted Other because On the Rocks is the only Sofia Coppola movie to make me cry. It's probably her warmest film, featuring a roller coaster of a relationship between Rashida Jones's and Bill Murray's characters that showcases some of Murray's most sensitive acting in years. A lot of fans labeled this as minor Coppola, but I think it's her most empathetic movie.
0: I really like that defense from Mitch, especially because feeling like it's minor Coppola is exactly how I feel about it, and yet I enjoyed it. Very much, and we gave it a positive review here on the show. Here's Jeremy Laffery. I love you all so much, but come on, deeply flawed. Lost in Translation may be her most well known, but it isn't her best. Somewhere, deeply underseen and underrated, the Beguiled and Marie Antoinette are all right alongside it easily, but the Virgin Suicides is still her best and most evocatively tuned into its central characters. It understands and represents the mysteries and illusions of adolescence better than Coppola's other films. It's one of the most haunting and emotionally intelligent movies. This side of Bergman. Ooh, Jeremy. Coming out strong. I like that I like that description though about
1: evocatively tuned into its central characters. I think mm-hmm. that's a good way to describe what she does at her best. One more comment here from Abby Waslewek. You asked for favorite, not best. So this poll topic compels me to express my love for a very merry Christmas. <laughs> I love this. It's a holiday tradition in my household that makes me feel like I get to hang out with all of Sofia Coppola's best friends for an hour and pretend I'm one of them.
0: So here's where I show my ignorance. I don't even know what that is.
1: Oh, this was like a, a, I think it was a Netflix Christmas special she directed a couple years ago now. And Murray's in it. And it's just, yeah, I'm trying to remember who else is in it. Random celebrities pop up. It's sort of like a riff on the old, you know, Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby hangout Christmas specials. It's got that vibe. It's got that feel. And I can't say it's a Christmas tradition for us, but we have watched it a couple of times
0: and give it a try. Give it a try this season, Adam. Our thanks to everyone who voted and shared a comment. Our new poll, which put my brain in an absolute pretzel, looks ahead to one of the many films we're looking forward to seeing in the crush of releases between Thanksgiving and year end. One that played recently at the Chicago Film Festival, Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and The Heron. It had appeared that the master animator was retired following 2013's The Wind Rises, but his desire to be the subject of a deeply flawed film spotting poll was just too great. The allure, Josh, it, it brought him back with a film some are calling yet another Miyazaki masterpiece.
1: Do we have Our to do question. this?
0: Yeah, we do. You know we do. Our question then, and here you can, you can interpret this how you want. Wording matters. Or, mm-hmm. or actually doesn't matter. It's, it's arbitrary. You can <laughs> interpret it how you choose. This is this formulation that producer Sam has become so fond of. He he loves stakes. He's basically instituting the incinerator model. And he's saying, you only get to keep one Miyazaki film. Now, here's what I was alluding to when I said the wording might matter. He isn't even necessarily saying, Josh, I don't know if you've gone here yet in your mind. He isn't even necessarily saying what's your favorite Mm -hmm. or what's your best, Mm -hmm. but he is saying you can only keep one for all the others. All the others are gone forever. Which one do you keep? He gave you four options and you can then write in other and go with one of your own choices if you don't think Sam provided the right options. Those options are. Howells' Moving Castle.
1: My Neighbor Totoro. Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away, or Other. And just to add to the complexity you were describing, yes, you're not choosing necessarily your personal favorite, your personal best. Sam's making you be curator for the world here. Yeah. Right? This is for posterity. Yes. This will represent Miyazaki's art, the the film that you vote for. Yeah. I am in no and way And I think prepared. that does change my answer. Probably, what about you? yeah probably me a little bit. Um, I am in no way prepared to answer. I will say this, the two titles- <laughs> No way prepared. The two titles <laughs> that I will be wrestling with when I cast my vote are on this list. So I think Sam's done good work for me, at least, so, so far there.
0: I guess I'll try to be a little bit more definitive. As I, as I went through- All the different scenarios of what I might vote for. And I noted the irony of the fact that one of the things I always bemoan when these types of questions come up or whenever we do talk about our rankings of a director, inevitably, we're talking about them because we've just seen one of these movies, a new movie, or we're rewatching a movie. But that means I have typically only seen all the other films on the list one time and maybe Years ago, and so I always wish, oh, if only I could just sit down and and have the the reason, have the means to watch every film in order and really sure. think about them in, yeah. in relation to each other and form that list. Do the work. Well, I kind of I kind of had that opportunity with Miyazaki back during COVID. Now I could cite the COVID excuse and say, who knows where my brain was during that time, but every Sunday at least for a two-month period, me and my kids, we decided to have a Miyazaki marathon, and we watched movies I had seen before, and we watched some that I had never seen before. So I watched them in order, and I gave them star ratings, and I thought about them. And at the end, Josh, I still felt like I didn't know how to put the movies in order. Mm-hmm. I truly didn't have any sense of how I actually should rank the films or or the ones that I I felt... I won't say that I felt strongest about because I'm going to give you a couple titles that I do feel stronger about than others. I'm just not sure I'm ready to rank <laughs> that top tier. And the, the thing for me, I even looked at some other Miyazaki lists. Of course, if you Google Miyazaki's best films or Miyazaki ranked, plenty of film websites have have done that work. And these titles are the ones that tend to be in that top four or six range. So I think I think Sam did a good job. But for me, two of the titles from Other are among his top three for me, for sure. And those are The Wind Rises. Very strong. And if, if my daughter, Sophie, is listening to this, she will jump up and cheer as I'm saying this because it's her favorite. She adores that film. And then where I go a little bit off the beaten path, yes, I did see a list or two that had it in the top five, but many others had it closer to the bottom. The other Miyazaki film, I've always been entranced by. And I really almost voted for here is Kiki's delivery service. Mm. Fun. Love Kiki. But the question is you can only keep one. And if I am thinking about keeping one not just for my own personal enjoyment, but I'm thinking about one I'm being the the curator you said, Josh. Can't I'm be thinking Kiki. about there only being there're only being one Miyazaki. Well, I'm going to say this about Kiki. I think it can be number two or number three on that list, but I do think it's, it's the chalk answer. I think it's spirited away. I think that's hmm. the definitive Miyazaki. I do. I get why most people rank it as the number one or number two best Miyazaki. I feel that way about it as well. I think it's in that top three for sure. I think it's the definitive film and is the vote here, even if those other two films might actually be more appreciated favorites of me personally.
1: All right. It's number spirited away. I would say number three on that list for me, not one of the two I'm torn over. So I'll get back to you on that. I'll make a
0: choice at some point. In early voting on Twitter and Facebook, spirited away does have an early lead. Passions are running high, as you may imagine, for many titles. Some listeners are voting for wanting to have nothing to do with this cursed poll question. I don't blame them here's a little bit of feedback we got josh from don nagy on facebook
1: i go through faces my first miyazaki was mononoke it blew me away and inspired me to track down his other films totoro supplanted mononoke for a while then porco rosso beat out totoro nausicaa made me cry hardest spirited away struck me as being a kind of ur anime the platonic perfect anime form it was my favorite for a long time even if i really loved panyo and wanted it to be my favorite Lately, though, I've come back around to Mononoke. It holds up so well to repeated viewings, never ceasing
0: to be deeply moving and sublime. Porco Rosso, also an underrated for me Miyazaki film. You can vote and leave a comment. You can tell the world how terrible film spotting producer Sam Van Halgren is. That's fine. He can take it. Filmspotting.net. I founded this institute to take the risk out of love. No more uncertainty, no more wondering if you've chosen the right partner, no more divorce. We were the first to build the machines to conduct the test
1: to make the bond of love stronger.
0: That's Luke Wilson in the trailer for Fingernails, a new film currently streaming on Apple TV, plus directed by Christos Niku. I don't know if you had this experience, Josh. Every time Luke Wilson spoke in this film off-screen, I thought maybe his brother Owen had appeared in the film. I had never noticed before them sounding alike. And it was very noticeable here. I mean, I, I
1: feel like you're just lumping all Wilsons together here. And I'm a bit uncomfortable about that.
0: <laughs> I thought you were going to say that I was doing that just so I could bust out my Owen Wilson, but I'm not going to grace you. Let's with hear that. it. I'm Let's not going to know am You know, I only saved that for Massacre Theater. Sorry. <laughs> Wilson true. plays Duncan, the founder of the Love Institute, which was Josh's band's name in high school. As you heard, the Love Institute helps couples determine whether triangle. they are meant, I play the triangle. meant to be together. <laughs> We will get to the machines that Wilson mentions in a bit, but that does give you some indication that Fingernails takes place in a near future, not so unlike our own or maybe what is actually more of a near past, Josh. It's a very analog present day in this film. No smartphones that I recall seeing. Can we say like
1: alternate reality? Does that apply here? Alternate reality.
0: I think that that could work. Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed are instructors at the Institute who seem to catch feelings for each other, despite the fact that Buckley's Anna is, according to the machines, definitely in love with Ryan, played by Jeremy Allen White. If you watch the trailer, you may sense that Niku is working in a similar vein as fellow Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos, who's the lobster, also imagines some funny solutions to partnering up and consequences for failing to partner up. We both love the lobster, Josh. Is Niku as successful? With fingernails, or are we about to incite an international incident by comparing both of these directors just because they're Greek?
1: Well, I mean, there's more to it, right? Like, Nico was second assistant director on Lanthimos's Dogtooth, so he's, he's clearly, you know, um, influenced by the other director and i think there's two ways you could go with this no it's not the lobster that is an incredible incredible movie um top 10 lister for me absolutely that year here's here's the generous reading and i enjoyed this movie i think it's good but it's it's a softer version of the Lobster. It's a harder version of something like, and I think alternative reality you could describe this way too, Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind.
0: Oh, yes. Clearly a touchstone.
1: Yeah. And and this has maybe, and I'm not saying that that is a much better movie than this as well, Um, but this is maybe has a bit more edge than that in terms of its use of violence, bodily harm. Um, things like that are what I'm <laughs> thinking of. Um, and those are Lanthimos touchstones too, right? The threat of bodily harm. Um, awkward dancing is here, which is a Lanthimos thing. Um, I just came from a Who is of-
0: the awkwardest dancer? That
1: will be spoiler talk on fingernail. Who's the awkwardest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I just came from Lanthimos's poor things, the uh, screening today there. Yes. Check, mark the box. There is awkward dancing there as well. Um, so, Do you say this is watered down, Lanthimos, edged up, Gondry, or do you say it's its own thing? I am going to be generous and say, for me, it was enough of its own thing. It had an optimistic charm to it that I think is distinct. And I do think there are strong performances throughout. We'll probably get to this, but I think it's very well acted. That is definitely one of its its strengths. I can understand, and neither of us has seen uh, Niku's previous film, Apples. so, so no. it would be helpful probably to have that context to bring to this, but I still think I enjoyed it. There's enough distinctiveness here and strange weirdo
0: invention at play for me to say it's worth checking out. I guess I was just in a bad mood this weekend watching films, Josh, and, and that's, <laughs> that's funny for me to say because I actually couldn't have been more excited to see both. Priscilla and fingernails. Maybe I set my expectations a little bit too high, but yeah, the pitch for this movie that I came up with is the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind mixed with, do you remember that Charlie McDowell movie we reviewed a few years back? The discovery. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very different. in Jason Siegel. Yeah. Jason Siegel. But that's a high concept movie like this one Mm -hmm. where there's a breakthrough that confirms that the afterlife exists. And as a result, way too many people are very happy to try to get there. A lot of people start killing themselves. That's the discovery. Here, the breakthrough is a test that confirms whether or not you are in love. And as a result, way too many people who don't get 100% on the test end up breaking up or getting divorced. There's this downside to this test that that was created for, I suppose, the right reasons— Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it was created just to make money. and oh, I think Luke maybe was, Wilson, yeah, Luke Wilson's heart is in the right place.
1: He's just <laughs> The fact that he was cast makes you know this is all a crock, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. and and this will get to my other point here in a second. i'm I'm not even totally sure. is Luke Wilson actually the creator, or is he more just like a guy who started his own franchise? of the it's test. Very, it's that's that's possible. actually what it feels like. Like yes. I don't think he made it. I missed that point maybe being emphatically stated. I I wish for me I could say that Fingernails was somewhere between Eternal Sunshine and The Discovery in terms of the positive experience I had with it. But if Sunshine is 100% to steal from this movie, if Sunshine is 100% and Discovery is 50% I'm going to give fingernails a zero on the Whoa. test, Josh. And and I'm as susceptible to watching Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed be adorable with each other as the next person. Yeah, I mean, that,
1: that should have carried I, you at least I, to like 12, 15 percent
0: I thought that might for me, but I really feel like this movie just squanders them and this great premise. I feel like the mm. movie is all premise. And I think it it wants to have it both ways as far as us Buying into this central idea of the test, while also being incredibly coy about the rules and the processes and what they're all even doing, it It even has a character. It's Luke Wilson's character early in the film. Explain it all. And I wondered if, in retrospect, I wondered if they they inserted that later and said, we need a scene where someone just lays out. yeah, it did what institute like it's all about, right. But even with that scene, Josh, and in the context, it's like he's, he's welcoming the new employees and he's telling them about what the company does and the job that they're taking on. It functions as an explainer for the audience about what they do at the Institute. And I still didn't totally process it. But even worse, I just didn't really buy any of it. And I think the, the whole point is that we're not supposed to know for sure mm. whether the test or any of this stuff is legitimate because what matters, again, this is my sense of what the movie is getting at, what matters is how incessantly we, the characters and we by extension, seek proof, that we we need, we crave the evidence. I suppose on some level then, me wanting the film to give me more facts makes me as guilty as the characters in the film who crave that certainty and and can't seem to live in the, uh, in the in-between, if you will. And what we see in this film is all characters who ostensibly have the certainty, a lot of them have the certainty, and they seem terribly unhappy, right? So I, I get that that might be what the movie is trying to explore, and yet with that premise, with that high concept, and it all feeling as flimsy as it did— didn't give me enough to latch on to with these characters. And then you've got you've got people like poor Jeremy Allen White, who isn't the bear here. He's the boar. He's given absolutely nothing to do. He's, <laughs> he's just such a dud in this movie. I felt bad for him every moment he was on screen.
1: Oh, I think he's really good here. But I will say I felt personally attacked that one of the attributes he holds to express that he's kind of boring is that he watches nature documentaries. Sure. I mean... <laughs> coming right after me here. His uh, his only redeeming facet Josh is he's got incredible hair, which we course, already knew. Of course he does. Uh, no, I disagree with you there. I think that I think he I don't know that the character is, you know, expertly written, but I do think Jeremy Allen White brings a gentle naivete that's very different from what he's doing on the bear that um, brings Ryan to life for me. I actually felt quite sympathetic to Ryan, even though I understood why Anna, the Buckley character, was concerned about their relationship. (laughs)
0: Yeah, but Josh, that's only because you, like me, was also bristling at the thought of him replicating the scene from Ghost. With Demi Moore and oh, Patrick gosh. Swayze, where they have to be doing pottery as a couple, and all he can think is, this is really messy, I want to <laughs> leave. Hey, <laughs> I could relate to that too, but Josh, and, and he you. brings a gentleness to it, he does. I'm with you that he brings a gentle naivete, and he's such a small part of this film in the grand scheme of things. It's not like he's the reason this movie doesn't work, and actually, I'm not I'm not demeaning the performance, it's how the character. written. Yeah, he's written. really good. I just, I just think he's completely unremarkable, and... Doesn't seem to bring the woman who is ostensibly in love with him a second of pleasure. So again, there's no, well, there's no yeah. tension there because we never, I never bought that relationship at all.
1: Well, the, the, the pleasure part is in the past. That's one of the things the movie is exploring, right? Is I wish is,
0: I could have sensed that
1: though. Yeah, I did. I I did. I mean, I think they have a good chemistry together and you sense, I mean, there's a great scene of them showering together and she, she tells another character, this is something they do. And they're given that moment of real connection, not just erotic connection, but, um, you know, a connection about where they are in their relationship when they're in the shower together. So, so I think he's good. I think that's a more fully fleshed out character than you'd get in the average movie. With this sort of situation where there's a, you know, a new flirtation, but you're in an established relationship. Um, uh, but yeah, the 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 nature documentary shot was completely unnecessary. I agree. Going back to the pottery thing, though, I love this movie quite funny. Um, we should state and I found it to be quite funny. I love it in the in the corner of the pottery scene. There's a couple to- and Debbie actually caught this before I did. We, we watched this together. A couple completely assuming the ghost position about the oh, yeah. pottery wheel right just in yeah. the corner of the frame um, so a lot of little jokes like that uh, going on which I think are good I think this movie Adam I think I had a different impression of what it was interested in I think it's more romantically oriented than you described I think it's interested in being romantic that's not to say that I found it romantic um, to me that was kind of one of the one of the drawbacks it, it seemed to be substituting even though this relationship between Ryan and Anna clearly has issues, he seems too comfortable um, and she has a right to want it to be exciting again. It seemed to be the movie seems to want infatuation and flirtation to stand in for true love, lasting love. And I think there's a gap there where I didn't find fingernails to be romantic, but I, I don't think the movie ever wants us to believe there's a shred of credibility. To This testing. I think it's clear. This goes back to the casting of Wilson. I mean, I'm joking, but I, I also think it's purposeful. This is, um, you know, completely a crock, as I said. Anna wants to believe in it because she is a romantic. She's the type who wants a relationship that always has, as she should, that always has that fire, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why she goes to work at this place because she she wants that certainty that you were talking about. Right. So so I think uh, that that's just like a little distinction that maybe allowed me to be more invested in where this story was going um, beyond its high concept premise i i did like that and i think you know just to give some credit to buckley as well she i think she's very sweet and she's very spirited as this true believer um she can carry this
0: movie through some of the rough patches i acknowledge are there i think the most provocative element of the film actually lies in some of those touches those comedic touches i did find it occasionally funny i also really loved that they do you know, use French or break into French and the French pop music, how they use it, because they sort of act like, well, what do you mean? Why are we playing it? It's just more romantic. It just Uh is because it's French. And the thing is, your ears listening to it go, Yeah, it is. And (laughs) you're right, it's gently swaying to the music, right? Yeah. We just get that. But I think that provocative element is in those touches where it references other films. Because it's not just being Meta, But it's getting at something which I think is really true, which is how we mimic movies and the way we act out what we perceive love to be based on these films. And then when our relationships don't seem to match what we see in the films, when the feelings don't seem to be as strong or as definitive, then that's when that doubt really does creep in, when it doesn't match up to the movies. And so you get... You get that. You come away thinking about that. And that feels very true to me. And you get funny moments like the ghost pottery. You also get you also get them walking out of a movie theater and it's a Hugh Grant retrospective. And I I did I noticed this today. I noticed this today and I had to do a little (laughs) sleuthing to confirm it. But if you watch just the trailer for fingernails, it shows them walking out of a theater, just like he does in the movie. And the marquee says on one side, like Hugh Grant retrospective and then on the other side it just says like the films of Hugh Grant and and that's not the joke though the joke in the movie they clearly replaced it later the joke in the movie is it says Hugh Grant retrospective on one side and then the longer title says no one understands love more Uh (laughs) (laughs) which is the best joke in the film it it really is
1: also we need to bring to the film spotting advisory board I believe we're discussing marathon options for 2024 Hugh Grant Marathon.
0: Hugh Grant. Let's do that, it. Put that on the We'll docket. call it uh, The No so, One Understands Love More
1: Marathon. <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's a very funny joke. Uh, so Riz Ahmed, most awkward
0: dancer, right, in this? Yeah. I mean, it certainly dwells on his dancing, even though I... I kind of dug it myself. Oh, I, I I aspire to
1: it. I want to yes. be the guy at a yes. office party who's
0: you know <laughs> confident
1: enough to just do that for sure. himself in a corner. Yes, um, absolutely. No shade there. But um, the other option would be the dinner party, right? The couple who just gets up and dances for everybody just gets else.
0: Gets up and dances. Yeah, yeah. Is there another instance of dancing? I'm forgetting. Well, I, know... I was just thinking of the other characters in that scene with Riz Ahmed. Everybody oh, okay. at that. At that party is dancing and and there's a fair amount of awkward dancing, Josh This is true. this is true. <laughs> yeah, have you ever been at a little dinner gathering with friends and had anyone, or have you and Debbie been the people who get up, put some music on and and start shaking it?
1: Dancing breakout out, I believe memory is fuzzy. There may have been a thirtieth <laughs> birthday dinner party for me, really, yeah, just at our house. Uh, it's a good thing we didn't know each other then. Yeah, yeah. And um, what's the song? Yeah, there was some awkward dancing. I'll, I'll have to I'll have to pull the song later and, and talk get to it Debbie. Back to you. I want to know what the
0: tune is. I want to know what gets you up and moving in front of other people like that. Okay, at an intimate gathering. <laughs> Fingernails is playing exclusively on Apple TV Plus. If you see it and agree or disagree. We would love to hear from you feedback at filmspotting.net. That's also where you can send any other comments about the show because, Josh, that is our show. If you want to connect with us
1: on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on film. Sam is torturing us via the current film spotting poll. We're looking ahead to Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron and asking you to pick one and only one Miyazaki film to save. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at FilmSpottingFamily.com for as little as five bucks a month. You can listen to the show early and ad free, plus, get a weekly newsletter, monthly bonus shows, and access to the entire Film Spotting archive.
0: In those archives, you can access every Sophia Coppola film reviewed, going back to Marie Antoinette. The show did not exist when The Virgin Suicides or Lost in Translation came out, but we did do a Sacred Cow review of Lost in Translation. We were wondering how long ago that was. I still can't put it in years, but it was, what's the math there, Josh, 250-ish episodes ago? Sounds right. That's that's a ways. That's at least five years. A great resource for finding all those episodes. Love to call out listener Bill McLaughlin's Film Spotting Guide to the Archives on Letterboxd. You can search for it there, or we do link to it on our website, on our list page, I think maybe on our episodes page as well. It truly does list every single movie we've ever reviewed on the show or included in a top five. It's astonishing. And we do encourage you to join the FilmSpotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. In limited release, you can see now the movie Josh recommended for the FilmSpotting Golden Brick last week on the show, All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt, streaming, I didn't know this existed. Here's another one, Josh, that now I have to see this weekend. Albert Brooks Defending My Life, a documentary about the actor, director, comedian, directed by Rob Reiner. And yes, David Fincher's The Killer hits Netflix. In wide release, you can see Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, that's expanding to more screens, and The Marvels from Nia DaCosta, also out starring Brie Larson. I will eternally... Be grateful to Nia DaCosta during COVID, Josh, for joining us during a trivia spotting live event. She was wonderful, and that was wonderfully gracious of her. I wish I was more excited to see the Marvels. Do you know for sure you're going to make time for it, or are you going to be too busy with the killer and the holdovers? It's going to be a busy weekend, um,
1: but I am seeing the marvels. I have some think Christian commitments. We're going to talk about that on the podcast. So need to catch that opening weekend. So yeah, I'll give you a little report here next week.
0: Okay. In addition to that little report, we will talk killer. We will talk holdovers from Alexander Payne. Outcasts. Hey, ya. That was the song. I mean,
1: well, it's, Im- okay. it's impossible to dance awkwardly it's to kind that, of, right? It's kind of impossible not to move when that song plays. I'll give you that. All right. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting,
0: I'm Josh Larson. Next month's bonus show video of Josh dancing to Hey Ya by Outcast. I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. That tier does not exist. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. FilmSpotting is listener-supported.